This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gaming Annihilation. Colonel Russell. Creepy Details. And Paul Paleologus Tagaris. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can and influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful. So you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R or leave immediately for your local game store before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the gaming hut, except I don't think that those Doritos are entirely made of corn. They're made of corn and bees, and the (laughs) miniatures are all sprouting tendrils. And the dice are being thrown by the invisible hand of an extraterrestrial presence. And it's not Peter Frampton at all. It's a giant wicker man. Oh, that D20 is mutated. It's all ones. Oh, no. We're, all we're ones. Screwed. Because we've entered the Shimmer, or as it is also called, Area X. Because friend of the podcast and delightful gumshoe author Ruth Tillman, who, in addition to those uh, criteria, is also a Patreon backer, and that's because how it's done, ladies and gentlemen. this is an all-request episode, Ken. Oh, that's, that's all right. All-request. Yeah. The first of our many requests, though the only one from Ruth, uh, we should say right now. We had a couple of no-request episodes. We're making up for it now. If people were expecting more requests from Ruth, this is the only one, but it's a doozy. And Ruth's request is... She requests... How does one play Annihilation at the table? Her request, she specifies, covers both Jeff Vandermeer's book and Alex Garland's film. So, Robin, do you have thoughts on, I guess first I should say, Robin, have you read the book and seen the film? I know you've seen the film. I've seen the film, but you were the one who did your homework on the book. I did. I'm, uh, I'm I, so I did good. my homework on a, a later book for another question. Uh, and I also want to dispel any sense that people may have that their request will get us to read books. Ah. <laughs> we we might do it, but eh. you may have noticed, folks, that if you've asked us questions that require extra homework, perhaps your questions have not been uh, answered. So, uh, with the a, alacrity a good that way, you might hope, yes, to get your question put in the liminal space 
of future hope is to give us a reading assignment. But in this case, you did the reading. No, because I, because I'd meant to do it already. I'd actually meant to get to it before I saw the movie. But in this case, uh, buoyed on a universal wave of acclaim, I, uh, also read the book after the movie and am now ready to reveal the answer to half of Ruth's question. So Ken, you, you've read the novel. Uh, I've seen the film and know, uh, from Alex Garland's description of his process in adapting the film that he, rather than going in and doing sort of a beat by beat faithful adaptation as one normally would, that, uh, he wanted something uh, strange and dreamlike that captured the essence of the book, and therefore, instead of uh, going back and indexing cards all the, uh, the moments in the book, he just based it on his recollection of having read the book, and therefore it is a, a loose adaptation, and I am guessing uh, that uh, helps it work as a film. So I guess the first question uh, people want to know is how, uh, in general, does the book uh, differ from the film, because that might change the question of how we adapt uh, this to a gaming experience. The specific nature of the infestation manifests differently. You can't say, because we're, we're not given anywhere near information about the difference, uh, about where the manifestation comes from, but it manifests differently in book and in film. Uh, that's one difference. Another difference is there is a, a, uh, a, a tower that is not the lighthouse that is a very core part of the book that is not present in the film because I guess Alex Garland said, how many towers do you need in a quest movie? Only one. And so he turned that into the lighthouse basically. And so that's sort of a difference of incident. And then the world of the novel is one in which the the southern reach authority the government is uh, if anything more host more overtly hostile and more overtly cruel or perhaps callous than even the uh, southern reach uh, government organization in the movie uh i don't think it's giving too much away to say that the psychiatrist character in the novel uh comes into the uh, into the area uh, armed with post-hypnotic triggers to use to compel behavior by the other members of the team, which is a, it's a pretty big difference from the movie in which Jennifer Jason Lee merely goes into the Southern Reach armed with a, um, uh, angry closed off affect and, uh, the, just the sheer will to command that she has in the, in the movie. So, right. so I'm going to go out on a limb here right, right away. Right. And say yeah. that for a gaming experience, we do not want to give one of the player characters post hop hypnotic triggers that compels choices on behalf of the other characters unless we are heavily signposting that that's the whole thing that's different about this experience is right. that all the other players are uh, here to play the experience of being uh, literally commanded by another character, not just told what to do, but told what they do. And you right. could make that part of the whole thing, but that would be the premise then that you're buying into, and anything else annihilation-y about the experience is secondary to, we're doing this weird experimental thing tonight, because otherwise... You can make the psychiatrist an NPC, and have the weird memory glitches and strange behavior you don't remember doing part of the weirdness of the area, and only later do the players parse out that, oh, the psychiatrist is actually doing this to us. Because right, we all except they figure those. that out in 12 seconds as players in a right. role-playing game. Because right. why are you playing a, a NPC along with this this mission, which normally, of course, would right. be contrary to general practice. So we have uh, crueler 
Southern Reach Authority. We have uh, post-hypnotic suggestions. We have more incident. We have a, a tower as well as a lighthouse. I wouldn't say more incident. I would say different incident. Different incident. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the book is not a racketing thrill ride by any means. It's an exploration of the eerie. It is, as I say, a gothic in which the emotions are not tempestuous love and fear, but ennui and introversion. And that is not a usual tenor for a gothic. So I think people maybe go along and they don't recognize that it's a gothic, but it absolutely is. Right. So the film, at any rate, gives us a really classic structure for um, both a, a film and a role-playing game. It's essentially my elevator pitch for the film is it's the Lost Patrol uh, meets Color Out of Space. And mm-hmm. so uh, the Lost Patrol, of course, is an early uh, 30. It's a 30s John Ford movie. It has Boris Karloff in it, among others. And it's about a patrol of uh, French Foreign Legion soldiers who are getting slowly uh, picked off one by one uh, in the uh, in this patrol they go on in a I think it's Algeria. Don't quote me on Probably. that, folks. Look it up. The, uh, the odds um, are, if they're French Foreign Legion, that's where you get picked off. Yes, and and it, and it may just be unspecified in the in the movie. I'm not sure, but it's the basic formula of who's going to survive, and that formula uh, has come through to everything from. You know, uh, Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians to slasher films. And the trick in pulling that off in a role playing format is, uh, that, uh, what do you do, uh, with the players as their characters start to die? So again, you sort of need, uh, buy in, uh, to the fact that, uh, this is a one shot. Uh, only one character is going to survive. And, uh, when your characters die, uh, which is hopefully going to happen, in, you know, toward the end of the experience at any rate. So either there's going to be something else that you can do as a player when your character dies, or it's just so enthralling somehow to continue to watch uh, the other characters as uh, your character gets bumped off that you continue to, you know, feel good about the experience of, of having done that. So, again, that's something that you have to kind of uh, warn people about up front. It's probably a convention game or a one-shot and it's certainly a format that people are used to, and so you might want to, you know, heavily signal in your description that, uh, you know, the characters, uh, as they head into this strange area, are going to uh, die one by one. And one way to signal that is to say, you're going off into the shimmer on behest of the Southern Reach Authority, and therefore the people who sign up for that event are going to be self-selecting and know what they're getting in for. Yeah, the... um I mean, this, this more than many games requires some active buy-in by the players because so much of it is about being creeped out and trying to solve a literally insolvable mystery. So they kind of have to be ready to just experience it. And I think that's also probably good advice for readers and viewers of Annihilation, um, without, uh, bringing to it the same sort of genre expectations that they might if it was Predator meets the color out of space, say. So the other half of that, then, uh, on top of player readiness, is that the GM has to be ready with a lot of incident, and not even incident so much as evidence of incident, that is suitably strange and weird. And maybe, as you say, for a convention or a one-shot, you can get that just by having read the book and and watching the movie, so your your mind is all psyched up with weird flowers and strange funguses and whatnot. But I think to play an Annihilation game the way that maybe it ought to be played, you should be having things that come out of your own personal sense of the eerie and natural, so that you're not just, you know, 
everyone's waiting for the, oh, right, here comes the screaming bear. That's the thing. All right, cool. All right. We, we, we saw that. Yay for us. Um, you want to have something that comes out that's awful, but is your own awful that is not, uh, you know, the same because literally the whole point of the annihil- of annihilation is nothing in here is what you expect to be in here. So, uh, they have to be brand new at the moment of experience. Right. So you might come up with your own version of genetic drift or something else. It's, uh, you know, your own, uh, 45 degree angle version of color out of space. And, uh, whatever that is, you've got to come up with a bunch of cool, creepy images. And, uh, you would want to have a lot of, uh, stability tests or sanity checks because essentially, you know, that there's, there's some shooting at the mutant creatures that come at you, uh, but really this is a slow sort of ticking uh, mental time bomb situation. And obviously one of the things that you can do when your character is knocked out is, you know, one of you might get to come back as a mutant or you can get to then uh, take narrative control of the awful things. And uh, you could have a series of, uh, you know, cards that you could hand out to other players uh, once their characters are bumped off where they get to read the uh, bits of uh, preset narration. And you would also need, I think, sort of uh, choices. You know, do you go along the road or you do go along the shore? And that uh, these would, uh, in this case, be real choices rather than the illusion of choice so that uh, they encounter other creepy sites along the shoreline than they would if they go along the, the road. Although, uh, presumably, you would converge on something at the end, whether it's the literal lighthouse or an analog for the lighthouse. I think it might be interesting um to uh, because as we're saying it's a one shot it's a it's a con game the the characters then can be pre-generated to have uh in the in the movie certainly traumas that they are attempting to exorcise by going into the into the southern reach into the area x in the novel it's less clear that that's what's going on although obviously all the characters are sort of broken people but that may be because uh Jeff Vandermeer is attempting to write a, a modern uh, novel as opposed to because he believes that the area is only attracting broken people in the sort of stalker roadside picnic way that Alex Garland explicitly foregrounds in uh, the movie. So what you might have is that players have both a survive condition and a die condition. And so they might say, oh, I'm going to play to my survive condition until I can't do that anymore until I've, my sanity has been eroded so low, my whatever, my I've lost my hit points, I, I just don't feel like doing it anymore, it's less fun. Now I'm going to flip over and play to my die condition, and that will let you have sort of dramatic detonations of your personal problems in the way that the movie and the book both foreground, right? Right, so that your character doesn't just randomly die because you meet the flower vortex, uh, which is right. not a thing. Although they might, I mean, you can't right. take the teeth off the flower vortex. Right, but... That, that rather that you, uh, when you, uh, do not survive an encounter with the flower vortex, the thing that happens to you is the die condition that you have in the envelope and then you open it up. And so it's right. not just that the, the flower vortex kills you the way that it is programmed to do in, in the scenarios it would be in a regular scenario, but rather that then activates the thing that happens to you so that you. Right. Uh, become a mutant or you uh, go crazy and try to kill another member of the group or, uh, you know, X, Y, Z, so that each of the characters has uh, a particular condition that they continue to forward the narrative even after they 
have failed the survive condition. And it might be, right. you know, a big final scene, but that the final scene is keyed to your character and to your sense of crisis. So that if your character is defined as being, uh, uh distrustful of others and, uh, uh, suffering from abandonment issues that, uh, you know, you're the one who, uh, decides to duct tape everybody to chairs. Whereas, right. you know, you're the one who turns out to have, uh, this condition that leads you to do X and Y. So that part of your curiosity of, you know, when you, you run out of survive points, whatever they are, you get the payoff of, well, at least now the mystery is revealed to me of how, uh, what my characteristic horrible demise is. And right. then what thing that I do that then causes more trouble for all the rest of the survivors. And another uh, thing you might do again, since they're pre-programmed characters or pre-generated characters is, in some games, uh, like the wound conditions, each have a different little name. So you begin as uh, fine, and then you become scuffed, and then you become battered, and then you become injured, and then you become crippled, and then you can become dead. And you can do that same thing with mental hit points, with your stability or your sanity, so that you begin as fine, and then you become suspicious, and then you become nervous, and then you become paranoid, and then you become manic paranoid, and then you, you flee into the jungle. And those are your sort of your mental health levels. And so even before you've opened your little, this is your final fate card, you can sort of track what your character's mental disintegration is going to be. And it can be different for each character. And you can sort of provide little signposts along the way, or you can have it even be a thing where maybe you peel off the next uh, thing after you've hit one level, you then look to the direction you're playing towards uh, next. That could be, right. might be a little uh, technically challenging, but I think it could be fun to you know you're going crazy, but you're not sure how crazy and which crazy. And, oh, look at that. I'm paranoid. Well, that explains everything. They were plotting against me. Right. And this would also allow us to nod back to the post-hypnotic triggers idea. In this mm -hmm. version, it wouldn't be activated by another character, per se, uh, but that rather you as author of the character could uh, decide, okay, I'm going to, uh, I have this post-hypnotic trigger card, and I can play this card, and in exchange for acting in accordance the way that I've been pre-programmed by the Southern Reach Authority, I can then move back some more steps on that mental disintegration uh, right. spectrum. And so that, that will heal you me. are no longer feeling that you're being torqued around and having control of your character taken away from you, but that rather as author of the character, you are playing that they have had control taken away from them, but you, the player, still have control over that. Uh, well, uh, one thing that we need to exercise control over is uh, I see there's a lighthouse in the distance, and it's uh, giving off this weird uh, light, uh, but we're shielded by a commercial. So I don't know. Let's go through the commercial and, and see if we come out the other side. Yeah, maybe there will be a flower vortex. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green 
tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrain Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? It's time once more to step into the shelf-lined confines of that most uh, uh, beautiful and satisfying of huts, the book hut. And this time, though, uh, we're looking at particular shelves that have a, a row of paperbacks on them. And those paperbacks are, many of them are thinner than we're accustomed to with today's uh, genre paperbacks. And judging from the smell of rotted pulp, I would say that many of them are either published in the 60s or perhaps they refer to the 60s. You never can tell with uh, pulp deterioration rates. But at any rate, uh, Sean Gomez, Patreon backer Sean Gomez, uh, has noticed, Ken, that you've been on a bit of a reading jag and asks, I'd love to hear more about the Colonel Russell books and any other fiction that might be good inspiration or information for Fall of Delta Green games. So those of you who read our text feature that comes out every Tuesday, Ken and Robin Consume Media, may have noted that you've been reading a lot of books by the uh, English writer William Haggard. And I, uh, as part of my homework assignment, uh, read one of them as well and, and quite enjoyed it. So before we broaden out the topic, uh, how did you come across these books? Is, is William Haggard enjoying a a revival or uh, did you just uh, stumble into this randomly? Far from it. Um, I Another one of the books that I read in our uh, Ken and Robin Consume Media was a book called 100 Thrillers, in which 100 thriller writers each take a thriller from the history of the thriller and sort of explicate it and say why it's great and why it inspired them to write thrillers and whatever else. And like all such books of this sort, the actual thrillers are more hit or miss than they ought to be. But I'd read about two-thirds of the ones in the book already, and every so often one would come up and I would say, I've never even heard of that guy. I wonder if those thrillers are as good as this book says or if they're not, because many of the things in the book are actually not very good. And William Haggard was one of them. I was sort of seduced by the description of them as uh, James Bond novels from M's perspective, which is already a cool concept, having been the core of the second greatest spy television show of all time, Sandbaggers. And I thought right. this might be a great thing to do. And I started uh, and reading. I would say even, even more so it's like, uh, if John Le Carre was excitable <laughs> or yeah. less excitable, right? It's like, right. Yeah. These are, uh, so, or at least the one I read was, ve it's yeah. very realistically drawn about real, uh, espionage. And there is suspense to it, but it's really more about sort of the workaday business. It's not that he's, uh, that M is at his desk getting reports about, uh, secret volcano lore, lairs being, uh, destroyed, but rather, you know, he's trying to make his way through the, uh, complexities of the, uh, English establishment to make sure that a particular business deal, uh, doesn't go down and another business deal goes down in its place. And what I, what struck me about the arena, which is the one 
that at that time you had most highly recommended and that I went ahead and read is that uh, the spy stuff is really just sort of a chassis for an investigation of the uh, dying English class structure. And so, for example, if you were going to do a William Haggard gumshoe game, uh, you know, class distinctions would be an academic ability. You know, there's a scene where one of the characters notes that the way that his news, news agent says, sir, is somehow off. And that's a, yeah. a tip off to something. And the whole uh, entire book is about studying the gradations of mores and manners and style in relationship to what that tells you about your character in a way that I uh, haven't seen since I last read a Jane Austen book. Yeah, the um, uh, the parallel that I draw is with the cozy mystery, which is a very also very class conscious, although less uh, sort of aware of being so class conscious. But it's very much this tight knit world in which something has gone wrong and Colonel Russell has to fix it in the name of the establishment. And because he's Anglo Irish, that's how you know that Colonel Russell is the outsider, the way that the police inspector in a cozy is an outsider. And that's his outsiderness is that he's only half English. So wow. Uh, <laughs> and, and, um, the, the author, William Haggard was very much to the right and his novels read like that, although they are not a uh, racist, uh, right. It's not Dennis Wheatley we're dealing with here, but it's very, very much the sort of, if only these Aravists and Americans and people with new money would stop ruining things. Britain could just keep functioning the way it has for the past 500 years. And sometimes uh, the authorial uh, balance slips a little bit and a character gets a comeuppance just for having been wrong. And that's bad. That, that's worse writing. I mean, the, the, the storytelling is still very good, but the writing slips. I think the arena is, is, is the best of the, of the first four. And then I read another one that was as good as the arena, uh, just now, which you will all get to hear about later. And it takes place in Italy where he has no jurisdiction. So you see more of his pure intellect and ability to manipulate people going on than he does when he's sitting at the center of his little, uh, office web in the, in the first four books. But the, um, but by and large, they are very much the first three quarters of all Sandbagger episodes where uh, Deops has a series of meetings and slowly gets his way. That That's basically the, the, the arc of these novels. And every now and again, there'll, a man will like threaten another man. Uh, there, I think there's a fist fight in the, in the fourth novel that's ever, oh my God, an actual fist fight has happened. <laughs> Things are getting and out of so hand here. They're, they're not, they're not action thrillers. Um, Haggard himself, uh, said that they were political thrillers, uh, in which espionage was a major element. And I think that that's a, a lovely way to, to, to put it. Um, uh, I should say that Haggard is a pseudonym. His real name was Richard Henry Michael Clayton. He was not, as far as I know, a spy, although he was in the civil service and so understands how that works. And while he was in wartime in India, he may actually have been attached or worked with uh, the MI5 units in India. So he has some sense of, of what security work entails. And he's a smart fellow who can read. Um, right. Le Carre, I think would be mad as a hornet to be compared to William Haggard because of the sort of, um, right wingness of Haggard. And of course, Haggard also is, uh, although he, uh, his character, uh, Colonel Russell has a respect for communists who are good at their job. His character is fundamentally anti-communist and anti all the things that come into the wake with the communists. And that I think is why to bring it back to the sort of topic of the question, these are good for the era because those of us who came of age after the sixties 
sort of forget that there used to be an alternative to wearing blue jeans everywhere and uh, letting it all hang out and letting people vote on things. And that alternative was let people in America from Yale and in Britain from Eton and Oxford uh, run everything. And that was a viable alternative, or at least it was presented as a viable alternative for a long, long time. It doesn't really come apart in America until the 70s. And in Britain, some would argue it still hasn't. Some might argue that it's coming coming apart even as we speak. <laughs> even as we speak. Well, not before time. <laughs> right. And if you were to add uh, Cthulhu to William Haggard, I think you would not end up with Fall of Delta Green so much as you would end up with The Laundry. Right. That there's yeah. something very specifically super English about this. Um, so, uh, let's move on then to the, to the rest of the question, because I see you've got a, a lovely list here of I other do. possible fictional inspirations for Fall of Delta Green. And, uh, you want to very quickly note, uh, the obvious ones that, uh, we have to say so that people don't tell us that they're surprised we didn't mention them. Uh, so that would be James Elroy, first of all. Who I mentioned in the sources, uh, the American tabloid, uh, trilogy, uh, is, it is, when I read it, I was thinking, this is Delta Green in the 1960s. I'm just waiting for Cthulhu to show up. Uh, it's absolutely what Delta Green is up to in the 1960s. So read that. And then right. obviously and, Don DeLillo's. And a big influence on the creators of, Fall, of Delta Green. Yes, very well. much so. John Tynes especially is a giant Elroy fan, and I assume, uh, the other uh, members of the Troika are. Um, Don DeLillo's Libro, of course, is the classic, a modern novel of the collapse of 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 everything in the 60s um it's uh cast as the adventures of lee harvey oswald but of course it's a modern novel and is uh full of conspiracies and weirdness and strange delillowy things and yeah all right now we've mentioned that and uh we can move on right so next we have on the list we have the assignment series uh, which goes from 55 to 76 by Edward S. Ahrens. Tell us about that. Yeah, the Assignment series is one of the sort of paperback original spy series that flooded the bookstores after the huge success of the James Bond novels. There are a million spy series that, that came out in the 60s. Uh, I picked Edmund Ahrens to read some of when I was writing Fall of Delta Green, just again to sort of put myself into the mind of the era uh the um uh hero in all of them is the same guy his name is sam durrell he's a he's a cajun from louisiana and he's an agent for basically the cia and he goes out and he has adventures the novels are not great novels by any stretch of the imagination but the character work is actually kind of good and the local color is really good um so and they all have great uh cool spy names like Assignment the Cairo Dancers, and Assignment Burma Girl, and Assignment Sulu Sea, and Assignment Bangkok. And so they're very, very spy in that. They're, you know, they're little thin paperback originals. They're maybe, you know, 120 pages a piece, if that. Um, uh, you can read them in a, you know, not even a whole afternoon. And, you know, don't, don't read them to read them. Read them until you feel like you've sort of got a handle on 60s realistic or mostly realistic spy adventure, and they'll do that for you. Um, the other example of that sort of uh, paperback original quick uh, turn is the Nick Carter Killmaster series. Nick Carter, who began life as a rival to Sherlock Holmes, uh, was reborn in uh, 1955 as an American James Bond, as a spy. And he goes around, he works for Axe, 
which is a fictional spy agency. His adventures are a little more Matt Helmy, James Bondy. Uh, the plots are wilder usually, but they're also very clever and you can get a lot of really cool things. But the, the, uh, tradecraft doesn't feel as real. First of all, because he's got a, he's a superhero. He's Nick Carter. He's got like gadgets and toys and goofy things like that. And he's got a bunch of dumb code names and, and sort of that, that sort of high camp uh, quality. And the novels are not as good because they're written by 150 different people just churning them out. So they're very, they're, 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 they're all over the map in terms of quality. Um, and none of them are, you know, not, you're not going to find a, a missing Ian Fleming. Uh, again, though, they will tell you very much what spy fiction feels like in the 1960s. The sort of, um, uh, Killmaster series, I think really starts going as spying, uh, in 1964 with run spy run and then goes, uh, forever. Uh, I think there's still a Nick Carter series out there somewhere, but, uh, the sort of high era of Nick Carter runs from 55 to 76. The spy stuff is, is the stuff of the sixties, which is the stuff you'd be reading anyway. And again, this is, I think it's even worse writing than the Edmund, the Edward Aaron's and Ed Aaron's is not a, a terrible writer. He's a workmanlike writer. Um, but the plots are very inventive and very fun and they can give you an idea of how to structure a story because again, because we got one hero and he follows this little trail of clues, uh, through a number of ladies' beds and Oriental Masterminds headquarters. It's very much, uh, gumshoeable in a way that, uh, a more, uh, a more opaque or, um, genuinely twisty spy novel isn't, such as the Quiller series by Adam Hall, which again, we go back to the British, uh, because hey, guess what? They do really, really good spy series. Uh, that begins with a book called the Berlin Memorandum. Um, I have yet to read a bad, uh, Quiller, uh, novel. I'm sure that they exist because all of these series generally sort of wear out their welcome. Um, I think Quiller goes until the nineties of all things, but the first, uh, a few of them are, are pretty great. Like many spy novels of the sixties, you'd think that they would all be eager to, to come to grips with the hated, uh, KGB and the, and the feared, uh, uh, But in fact, a lot of them like to hunt down Nazis or, um, uh, or pirates or, or James Bond type villains. And that may be the pernicious effect of Bond. And it may be because people were looking for escapism from these series, not so much, uh, the real, uh, grimy world of the cold war. So every so often you get sort of these weird third force bad guys. But again, in the fall of Delta green world, that, that happens because you might right. be hunting people and it's Karatekia or it's uh, a Haster cult or it's uh, whatever. Uh, and it's not actually obviously the KGB doing it because the KGB are off um, uh, uh, supporting the entire British and American establishments. Right. Because uh, the, the elder sign is the opiate of the masses. Um, right. So next we have the, uh, the Harry Palmer series by Len Dayton and, uh, People know uh, this from the uh, Michael Caine movie adaptations. How are the books? Uh, the books are very good. the The character is is never named Harry Palmer um, in the books. He's unnamed, but the novels he has a bad attitude, and he's explicitly and again they're they're as class centric as the as the Haggard novels. But Dayton is writing them from the perspective of maybe a guy who didn't go to the right school and is mad about it. And so the, um, the, the character is, is more working class, which is why he was, Michael Caine was cast to play him. Uh, those of you who only know him with his stuffy RP, uh, characters have to remember that nope, Michael Caine was once the working class hero actor. And, uh, so, 
that's why he played Harry Palmer in the movies. Uh, I think that Funeral in Berlin may be my favorite of the novels. Uh, I haven't seen the movie Funeral in Berlin. Um, but Ipgrass File is also very good. I think Ipgrass File is a better movie than it is a novel. They go back and forth. But again, uh, Dayton is trying very, very hard to write fairly realistic spy fiction. Um, Billion Dollar Brain is the sort of bondiest of them in that it's about a, uh, a crazy supercomputer. Um, and, but again, the bondy ones are not necessarily the ones that don't work for Fall of Delta Green because you might indeed be tracking down some crazy supercomputer, only it's majestic behind it, not a eccentric Texan billionaire. Right. And the movie version of that one is the weirdest and trippiest of the film series because it's directed by Ken Russell. Yeah, so it's insane. If you want it's literally a really psychedelic one where reality is starting to uh, slip out from under your feet. Uh, it's not. It's not the best in the series, but it might be your best uh, inspiration uh, for uh, Fall of Delta Green purposes. I think certainly if you watch it with a mythos mind, you will get a lot of mythos out of it. Next up on your list, you have Lionel Davidson, The Rose of Tibet which is written in 62 and set in 1950. Yeah, it's it this is a straight up adventure novel of the sort that people in 1962 thought you couldn't write anymore and it's about a guy who goes into Tibet to find out what happened I think to his brother and it turns out his brother fell in with the communist Chinese who were invading Tibet and against the sort of backdrop of this Climbing up into the mountains, there's sort of a weird mystical quality to it. He meets a beautiful woman, the titular Rose of Tibet. Um, there's a lot of sort of the uh, very uh, real and vivid landscape of uh, the Himalayas, which if you're doing a Delta Green adventure where you're up in the Himalayas fighting the Migo, uh, that would be a, a great thing. And obviously the CIA is all over the Himalayas in the 60s. Uh, working with the Tibetan revolutionaries, or in many cases working against the Tibetan revolutionaries, and doing all manner of exciting adventurous uh, activities. So if you if you want to set something in the Himalayas in the fall of Delta Green era, read The Rose of Tibet. Also, it's a terrific novel. It's really good. Uh, Lyle Davidson somehow wrote maybe six novels. Every one of them is a almost a masterpiece. Every one of them reads entirely differently. So. Rose of Tibet is his sort of, um, uh, Alistair McLean, uh, H. Ryder Haggerty sort of, uh, adventure novel, but, uh, Wenceslas Affair, I think is what it's called. That's his Eric Ambler. Um, he then wrote one much later called, the, I think, the Kalimsky Precinct or Kalimsky Project, and that was, uh, that's a whole different, uh, that, that's like straight up Tom Clancy. And, He's got a, a an archaeological adventure novel that's that's really good. I don't know uh, what it is about Lyle Davidson, but he's he's a master of writing the one-off novel that really works. So I recommend him anyway. But Rose of Tibet is very very fall of Delta Greeny if you're going to the to the Himalayas. Uh, very quickly because we're running out of time for this segment. Uh, Charles McCary, Tears of Autumn. This is uh, one that you're recommending out of a series, the Paul Christopher series. And it's written in 74, but set in 63 and 64. Yeah, Charles McCary was a CIA officer. His hero, Paul Christopher, is also a CIA officer. And in this novel, uh, Paul Christopher thinks there's something hinky about the Kennedy assassination and ties it to the DM assassination that Kennedy had ordered and is immediately bounced from the CIA when he tries to investigate it and doesn't take that lying down. So this is a great example of the former CIA agent or the CIA agent who's not operating under an official cover who goes around and has adventures 
that are maybe off the books, maybe not off the books. And it's also just, I think it's the best of the Paul Christopher series because this, the stakes are really high in Paul Christopher's center stage. In a lot of the novels, Paul Christopher sort of stands off to one side and the adventure happens around him. In this one, it's very much about him. Uh, so it's, uh, it's terrific. And if you haven't read McCary, McCary's a great novelist as well. Uh, next up, we have a titan of the 1970s bestseller list, Frederick Forsyth, uh, with Day of the Jackal and the Odessa File. The Day of the Jackal is written in 71, but set in 63. And the Odessa File is, uh, written a year later and, uh, set a year later in 64. Yeah. Day of the Jackal is just, um, it, it, it's, Forsyth is one of the fathers of, the techno thriller and that he's one of the people who believed that the more research, uh, and the more absolute realism you could put into a spy novel, the more nonsense you could get away with. And so <laughs> the day of the jackal is an absolutely straightforward police crime thriller set against the backdrop of an assassination of Charles de Gaulle that the reader knows never happened because it never happened. But this is how he gets you to, you know, buy the premise that this guy, the Jackal, is going to assassinate Charles de Gaulle, and it's very much, and because of the, the degree of research and the degree of verisimilitude, if you're trying to uh, write a Fall of Delta Green adventure in any of those milieus, France, Algeria, um, uh, England, in the 1960s, uh, this will carry you right through it. The Odessa file, obviously, is um, the Frederick Forsyth narrator investigating Odessa, the organization of uh, Nazi uh, war criminals and fugitives, and of course that is just your, you know, my first Karatekia, uh, uh, starter kit is to read the Odessa file or watch the movie, which is not as good. John Voight is, is terrific. Uh, but it's, uh, but it's not as good as the book and, uh, read the book and, uh, you'll be able to go hunting after the, the Karatekia with the best of them. It's the best of the Nazi war criminal hunting books. I think even better than boys from Brazil. And it is, has the great advantage of having been written by a guy who's, uh, life as a professional journalist taught him to look things up and put details in things. And that shows up in the novels, especially in those two, which are very, very uh, uh, mineable. Even if you don't use the central plot, you can use all of the incident. And uh, finally, we have a book uh, written in 2009. So we have a, a recent title. Uh, it's set in 1969, and the book is Free Agent by Jeremy Duns. Uh, Jeremy Duns may be the best writer of spy fiction of this century so far. Um, I mean, it's, it's a young century. So I, I don't think he's going to hold the crown forever, but free agent is very, very good. It's about a MI6 guy who goes to Biafra in Nigeria to figure out who's leaking uh, stuff from MI6. And the, the answer, which comes fairly early in the book is a pretty big facer. So I don't want to give it away, but at that point, uh, our hero then becomes what what the title says, a free agent. He's on the run. He's in Biafra in the 60s. Uh, everyone's after him. And that is the sort of the, the again, you have a, an agent who has all those skills but can't call on official uh, uh, backing. And in many cases, the officials are mad at him. Again, very Delta Green. And it's just a it's a very, very, very good spy novel. And I recommend everything Jeremy Dunn's writes is, is pretty good. But that's but that's really good. Uh, well, we've now assigned plenty of homework to our uh, listeners. And uh, while uh, they're uh, checking their uh, course syllabus and heading to the textbook store to buy all of these uh, spy thrillers, we can head through this commercial and see what lies on the other side.
Hey Ken, what happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your Steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Master the secrets of cozy spying in the company of such backers as... Tristan Knight. Jake Moss. Yuri Horneman. Martin Rundqvist. And Phil Bailey. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Louis Sylvester asks Ken and Robin, or mostly Robin, he says, I believe that horror films are at their best when the monster or danger is not seen but heard. There is something so menacing about creepy sounds and glimpses of movement. This works. This is more lecture, Ken and Robin, so far. This works because film is a visual medium and the viewer is being denied the visual. Do you have suggestions for creating the same uneasy, horrific feeling in prose writing? Uh, this is why it's mostly Robin. Or even at the RPG table. Thanks, Ken, where visuals no longer <laughs> exist. Robin? Right. So... We're talking not just about uh, the use of sound effects in a game, because I, I think we've talked about that earlier, but about the idea of the uh, presence, the presentiment of a, of a horror before the actual thing uh, comes uh, online. And that's why the first acts of the sort of paranormal activity style movies kind of get me, but then it's, the payoffs never uh, work because, uh, you know, the really uh, scary stuff is just the idea that there's something in your apartment with you, and they're messing with you before they're going to rob you. There's just possibilities of horror. And so uh, in prose, uh, you uh, can somewhat handle that with just sort of the cadence of your writing. And so, uh, you know, little short bursts of uh, sentences and short paragraphs can, you know, uh, you know, an entire paragraph could be, uh, she returned to the table and the pen was six inches to the left. And the more sort of quotidian you can make it as you kind of build your way up through the series of manifestations, uh, the better. Eventually, you're going to have to escalate uh, into the, the, the bigger thing at the end, and that becomes a, a, a trick unto itself. But fortunately, that's sort of outside of the remit of uh, what we're doing here. In some cases, you though you can't really... Uh, replicate the beats of a horror film on the prose page just because it winds up seeming sort of forced and, and screenplay-y. So, uh, you know, it, another horror moment that's sort of a class, classic moment from film is the protagonist gets into the car and she's putting the 
uh, keys in the ignition and she drops the keys, which is like it, you've seen it a zillion times because it's a, always an effective beat. But having someone do have those little micro failures on the pros page just doesn't work as well. Uh, but what does work and something that you can't do in film, uh, you know, when you're moving from one uh, fictional platform for, to another, you want to make your best possible use of the tools that you've been given is the subjective point of view. So that when you describe the fact that a pen has moved on the table while the character's back is turned, you can get the little quick hit of that through a, a punchy little sentence. But then you go through the mental process that the character experiences when she realizes that the pen has been moved. And um, the use of uh, interior monologue, I think, is very strong uh, in horror. Uh, it's something that I uh, kind of tend to shy away from in other genres because I think it's kind of cheating and people use it a lot these days. You can get into word spinning with it, but it's not a, a tool that I would want to deprive myself of in straight-up horror because you can make the person's reaction, uh, not only their uh, intellectual reaction, but their physical reaction to uh, what they are experiencing, uh, amplify that. So, you know, she sees the uh, pen on the table, and then, you know, she began to, as she thought about it more, she be, had to steady herself on the sink, and uh, she thinks what you know, who could have moved the pan and go through that right. sort of uh, experience of, you know, trying to convince yourself that it's uh, it's not really real, which, of course, is frightening because then there's an ironic distance attached to that. And, and you as the reader have a pretty good feeling that maybe the pen moved for something that's real. And it also makes plausible the fact that she the character doesn't immediately escalate to stage 10 of a haunting just because a, a pen got moved. Right. Yeah, the, um, that, that sort of ability to go inside the character is the great thing that prose can do, obviously, that film can't, because you can't have a character in monologue say, it was at that point that I was terrified that maybe my house had a ghost in it. And even in your paranormal activities, sometimes you have one character say hysterically to another character, that pen moved, I swear it was six inches to the left. And then her husband, it's always the husband, says, now, now, Cassidy, uh, pens, you probably just move that without thinking because you're a stupid, excitable woman. And you have that beat, and then that gives you that same ironic distance as the audience is like, no, you fool, you're in a movie about a poltergeist. But that dialogue is still a little hackneyed and ham-handed. Another thing that, that pros can do that films can't do is have a strange or eerie thing set off a train of thought in the beholder of in the fiction. So the pen moves and they think, gosh, that reminds me of a story I read about this haunted house that I live in. Or gosh, that reminds me of when I was a little baby and things used to move around my house and everyone said, Oh, that's nothing. And then father Luigi came and it, the pens all stopped moving for a while or whatever, which you again, can't do in a film because it becomes too nested. And, and people are like, wait, did the pen, what are we, what, where, what are we doing? And then the third thing that you can do is just straight up make it feel weird that something happens for no other reason than everything is sort of weird. And that's something that the movies do with music, not even so much with sound, but with music or with uh, lighting or with the direction, the camera slows down to a crawl. You're like, okay, something creepy's happening. And in a, in a, in a, in a, a prose work that the language changes or the language, uh, 
emphasizes a thing in contrast to the quotidian activity that's actually happening. And the examples there, obviously, your Lovecrafts, your M.R. Jameses. But I would say if you're looking for the uneasy, horrific feeling in prose writing, read Algernon Blackwood's The Willows, which is, I think, 90 percent uneasy, horrific feeling. There is a brief moment where a canoe gets caught in an eddy, I think, and that's the action in The Willows. But virtually everything is Man, this island is creepy. That's the short story. The short story of the creepy island. And The Willows is amazing. It's one of the greatest uh, pieces of horror fiction ever written. Um, obviously, you can't be Algernon Blackwood, but you can see how someone does it. And then when you sort of break it out and say, what actually happened in The Willows? Like I said, well, nothing actually happened in The Willows. But there is this absolute sense of an outer evil presence, uh, or hostile presence at least, uh, impressing its, 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 uh, not even its will, but its attention on a scene. And that's something you can't do in film. Really. Right. And, and the tools of mood, uh, include, you know, your, your, your prose basics. So, uh, imagery, not just visual imagery, uh, but, uh, other sensory imagery. So, um, what does it smell like? What does the, mm-hmm. uh, the touch of, you know, what does the pen feel like when the character uh, touches it? Does the character, uh, you know, take a Kleenex and pick up the, pen with a Kleenex and put it in a bag or, um, you know, what are the, uh, what's the temperature in the room? What, uh, and, uh, you know, what is the, uh, the, the weather outside? There's all these sort of uh, accumulation of sensory details that can uh, create a sensation of dread. Now in, uh, at the role playing table, uh, terrifying, uh, characters playing a role playing game, uh, you have the biggest weapon of all, which is that the players as people are not people who want to be in the situation that their characters are in. And uh, even the smallest little bit of what you think of as absolutely quotidian uh, description uh, as a GM uh, can already be quite terrifying to your players. So just the fact that you're describing, oh yeah, the door's red and there's some, uh, there's a light shining on it and there's uh, paint chips. Uh, it looks like there's been layers of uh uh, heavy enamel-based paint over it over the years, and there's some scratch marks on it. Even if you're not planning to have the door be anything scary, uh, nine times out of ten, you'll actually wind up, uh, if, especially once you establish a reputation for having scared your players in the past, they will always be scared of everything you describe. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, just the fact that you are describing a quotidian detail uh, with well-trained players uh, is already absolutely terrifying. And uh, certainly my problem uh, is not how do I scare my players, uh, but how do I unscare them? <laughs> how do I describe a regular door in a way that they won't find terrifying, but is, you know, because even if it, it's an extremely well-lit door, fresh from Home Depot, you can see it's, and it smells like fresh pine, and it's it's the best door you ever saw or touched or smelled, and my player, ah, no! Not a fresh installed door. door. Why? No! Why have they sent us the perfect door? Right. Because the, the very fact of describing something verbally in role-playing uh, shines a giant uh, a light on it, and if, as soon as your players know they're in a horror game, which of course you should inform them of before running them in a horror game, their imaginative apprehension and their desire to protect their characters uh, will kick in in a way that it wouldn't for them if they were watching a shot of that door in a movie or just a description of that door uh, in, a, in a book. Uh, the Another uh, thing that you can uh, do with players is um, the good old, uh, you know, roll to listen or roll to spot hidden, or do you want to uh, spend a notice point? 
type thing. And even if the detail that you provide is not overtly terrifying, and you should have a detail, you shouldn't just do it to be a jerk, but the act of having put them on alert puts them on alert. And you can say, you know, you know, you see the birds flying, uh, across the, uh, across the sky. And, you know, you notice that because these birds are flying south to north, whereas all the other birds were flying north to south. And just by itself, that's not a detail really. But in a horror game, as you say, that becomes pregnant with significance and players invest it with that. And because they sort of, paid either time or resources to find it, they value it highly as opposed to just, oh, there's a bunch of birds flying around, which even if you describe them in a creepy way are not necessarily uh, the thing that they're going to be using as a signal. And if you're trying to send either a specific signal that a pen moved or those birds are weird, that, you know, having them collaborate with you and revealing that awfulness to them is is a good way to do it. Um, you can also, of course, I, I think smell is something that is underrated as an input. Uh, I think that uh, if you provide a smell to player characters you, or to players, you say you smell uh, a, an astringent smell like uh, juniper, uh, they're like, why do I smell that? That's very odd. And because they're not full of smell input usually in, in RPGs, a smell... Uh, and because it's such a powerful sense memory, uh, smells, I think, are a good way to signal something weird going on. Right. And you can have sort of a one-two punch in something like Gumshoe where the, uh, you know, the, the person with the science-related skills smells and go, oh, that's Juniper. And then someone else, what are the occult implications of Juniper? Well, uh, the notorious gin killings in uh, 1705 come to mind and, uh, you're, uh, weirdly, you know, only 30 miles away from where the first of those killings occurred and, uh, you know, you can uh, spin that in, in all directions. And, uh, you know, obviously that'll cause the characters to have to get drunk on gin at some point, which is also uh, always a, you know, if you can do anything that alters their, their senses uh, and makes them uh, feel a little bit off the game, that is also uh, a scary thing you can do. But I think somewhat off the point, And therefore, oh, I, you know what I smell on the other side of that commercial, Ken? Is it juniper? Uh, no, it's another segment. So let's head over there. Oh, all right. I was hoping it was gin. What I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera! Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. So we find ourselves not in a hut per se, but on the plane of huts, because this uh, next topic, which was posed to us by uh, Jacob Ansari, he wants to know about Paul... Paleologus Tagaris, and 
I'm not sure. On one side, to the right, uh, we have the history hut, which you can identify from the outside because the uh, chimney looks like a stovepipe hat. But on the other side, we have the Edwardian building, where if we went up the creepy stairs, we would find the consulting occultist. Can't I think this has some consulting occultist aspect to it, but it's really more... Aren't we headed to the history hut to talk about this one? I think it's mostly a history hut, but the consulting occultist is like on the line. You know, he's a, he's a phone a friend uh, for this. Right. Hut. Okay. Well, we, we may uh, text him uh, as we go. Uh, so, uh, Paul Paleologus Tagaris uh, was a peripatetic uh, figure in the 14th century. Uh, he was, a, uh, I guess, a uh, a religious grifter, one might say, who grifted yeah, his I way think that's exactly through what it was. every available uh, form of the uh, Christian religion that uh, a, a young, up-and-coming young uh, con artist could uh, possibly hope to glom onto uh, well, in fairness to Paul, he only grifted the ones with money. Yes, exactly. I don't think that he ever went to the Maronites in Lebanon and tried to grift them. I think he was mostly just grifting a Greek Orthodox church in Constantinople and and in points east, and also, of course, the good old Pope. Uh, and if you're right. going to grift the Pope, by gosh, I'm going to just slap you on the back and say, way to go, Paul Paleologus Tagaris. Nicely done. Right. And to get ahead of the story... Uh, he did this in an era where there were multiple popes to grift, and in fact, uh, did so, so. That's true. He did have an extra pope to grift. Yes, exactly. Uh, it was the it was the high times uh, for pope grifting, and the fact that another pope was mad at you was like a, a point in your favor. But let's start at the beginning. So, uh, by birth, he was probably oh, must we yes, uh, Paul Tagaris, uh, who he, he was of uh warrior uh stock born in uh, Constantinople but uh he claimed descent from the Paleologus who were the final uh dynasty of uh Byzantium uh before Constantinople uh as the song goes became Istanbul right what what were his beginnings as as a robed grifter uh, his beginnings as a grifter uh were to abandon his wife and become a monk and once he got bored with being a monk, he came back with an icon uh, that he said he had found in Jerusalem and it had uh, it, it could do miracles. And if you just uh, put some money down, this ministry would do miracles for you. It's the good old televangelizing just before they even had tele <laughs> before the tele. Yes. But he had a cool icon and he was basically embarrassing everybody, but he was making a lot of money. Uh, the patriarch. Uh, doesn't do anything, uh, probably because the patriarch is being paid off. Yeah, the, the, the patriarch has a sort of a bit of a soft spot for him. And then, um, uh, the patriarch goes out of town, and then the acting patriarch, the, the se- second in line, vice patriarch, confiscates the icon, says, you can't have nice things, and says, go back and be a monk like you promised. And so he goes back to Pal- Palestine, and falls in with the deacon of, or the patriarch of Jerusalem. Uh, who at this point is not run by the town of Jerusalem is run by the Muslims, not by the Byzantines. So the patriarch of Jerusalem's feeling his oats. And he says that mean old patriarch of Constantinople who's always trying to shove you around, uh, doesn't like me. And the patriarch of Jerusalem says, well, I like you and I'm going to, um, uh, make you my special friend. Uh, now I'm going to have to go yes, on a trip. Paul has spent all of his points in ingratiating himself with ecclesiasts. Right. And my vice patriarch will take care of you. And of course, vice patriarchs hate this guy and they chase him out to Antioch <laughs> where once more 
he be friends? Guess who? Guess who, Robin? Uh, it's a Patriarch. Could it be another guy in a robe who's got yes. uh, uh, rivalries to prosecute? And so Patriarch Michael of Antioch makes him a priest and a patriarchal exarch. Which is like right. a legate, he I guess. He makes him vice patriarch. The vice patriarchs have always been his nemesis, and now he is right. one. So, of course, does he now behave himself? Of course not. He begins to blackmail bishops uh, uh, to keep their jobs. And if they don't pay up, he has them fired. And uh, if they complain about the blackmail, he reports them to the Turks. And the Turks don't want problems with the Christian community, so they listen to the patriarch or the patriarch's exarch. And uh, they say, well, don't make trouble or we'll bad you. And so then he decided he wanted to be patriarch of Jerusalem, so he just said he was and went around and began ordaining his own bishops. Again, one assumes for a hefty sum. And uh he he claims that he's on his way to Constantinople to give his fortune to the poor, but never quite gets around to that. And he's basically paid off with another bishopric of the Torision, and that is either in the farthest eastern fringes or the farthest northern fringes of the Byzantine world. It's let's just get him out of civilization. Right. And and for those of you who are are not up on your uh, Byzantine uh, ecclesiastical history, of course, this means they're all part of the Orthodox Church. So, so far, he's been grifting uh, within the structure of the Orthodox Church. But now that he has burned everybody in his home region and his home religion, he decides... Uh, in 1379, you know what? There's a bunch of other guys with robes in Rome, and they are not cottoned on to my shenanigans. So why don't I head on over there? And there's an elaborate journey through the, uh, the, the horde lands in Hungary that are controlled at this point by the, uh, the Mongol horde, and he makes his way through. He has safe passage, and he gets his way, uh, to Rome, and of course, step one, convert to Catholicism. So he's, Switching sides, folks. No, no. Step one is claim to be patriarch of Jerusalem still. Right. (laughs) Then step two is, but I have seen the error of my heretic ways and wish to convert to Catholicism, and do you have a job for me? Right. So (laughs) Urban the Sixth, he uses all of, he uses an interpersonal spend on Urban the Sixth, and Urban the Sixth goes, you know what? We have an opening for our patriarch of, of Constantinople because, of course, uh, we have not acknowledged that there's that the Orthodox uh, hierarchy has any legitimacy uh, whatsoever. So we have our own parallel hierarchy. Uh, note this in your books. This theme will crop up again. And uh, so how would you like to be the Latin patriarch of Constantinople, uh, which, of course, means that you go and set up at Negroponte, which is actually controlled by the, the Catholic Church. Right. And on his triumphant tour to Negroponte, he stops off in Ancona in Italy and presents the locals with so many relics that even at the time people said, this seems like a lot of relics for a guy to be carrying around with him. <laughs> he's, he's getting a little, a little cocky with his relic game. Yes. Um, and then he eventually goes to Negropont to run, uh, the, the patriarchate of the, uh, of the East right. for before we move on, I would like to specify what some of the uh, artifacts are for, for their atmospheric right. value. Uh, right. yes. He said he had the head of James the Just, uh, which means, you know, he just had the head. Uh, and then uh, that wasn't good enough, I guess. And so a few days later, he gave uh, them the foot of St. Anne and, of course, the ever-popular nail from the True Cross, which, uh, as we know, uh, had a lot of nails in it. And again, when it says, when it, the, the bald presented it to the locals. That doesn't mean 
He just, out of the goodness of his heart, gave <laughs> them a mummified head. He charged the Bishop of Ankara to get to have the right to keep the head. I mean, I'm sure that yeah. there was all kinds of endorsement deals and back backcountry things. Yeah, what that meant is, is it was a presentation, not a, not a gift. Like, come on, people. Don't be naive. Right. Yeah, get it right. And so when he shows up, uh, the other Latin archbishops that in, in uh, because I guess if you're a Catholic archbishop, it's like being a vice patriarch, hated him instantly and kept writing angry letters to the Pope and saying, this guy's awful. He's just trying to blackmail us all the time. Uh, not in the good way that you do. And uh, lots of other complaints. <laughs> um, he then uh, leaves the Negropont ahead of perhaps an investigation and goes to Cyprus and crowns the king of Cyprus in exchange for a mere 30,000 gold ducats. <laughs> Just a, a simple, um, uh, a simple amuse bouche, if right. you will. That probably a had little, some prayer um, water associated with it or possibly a blessed right. shawl or something, I'm guessing. And then he thinks, well, I'm, I'm about to get back to the part where everyone literally wants to have me burned at the stake. So I'll go back to Rome, uh, waits for the new pope to show up. Or actually, no, he doesn't wait. But they he goes back to Rome and says, remember me, Urban Six, and Urban Six, indeed I do, and claps him in prison. And then the new pope lets him out, and um, uh, he keeps trying to play the Paleologus card, and then he hears about yet another pope, Pope Clement VII at Avignon. <laughs> There's a pope I haven't burned yet. That's right, a new pope. And he shows up and he says, oh my God, thank goodness I found a real Christian pope. You would not believe how all the other popes treat me. And... <laughs> Clement the seventh says, well, if they're mean to you, you're my buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Let me drape some gold on you. Then goes back to the relic game, goes to the Abbey of Saint-Denis and says, oh, you like St. Denis, as we call him back in Greece. Guess what? I left a bunch of his relics back in Athens where I was Pope of Athens. And if you give me money, I will go back and dig them up and then you would have these awesome relics. And so they paid him a huge fortune to go back to Greece. And on the way back to Greece, he stops in Italy and uh, bribes the captain to just uh, uh, lie to his official handlers from Saint-Denis and sail on without them. And uh, he uh, returns to Constantinople and appears before the new patriarch, says... I've seen the error of my ways. Catholicism is wrong. Only Greek Orthodoxy is the right one. And by the way, I'm not a fornicating uh, magician. And one assumed Patriarch Anthony said, I didn't know you were accused of being a fornicating <laughs> magician. This is a whole new case. We had fraud, imposture, and heresy, but this is new. And so they had well, to... Well, you know, it, that, that whole have too many scandals to keep track of strategy turns out to not be a contemporary innovation. Right. And so they had to have a patriarchal court or, or a patriarchal synod to judge him because of the gravity of these new accusations. And the best part of this story, Robin, is that the only source we have for the patriarchal synod is missing the last page. So we don't know whether he was found innocent. That's it. Yep. That's the Paul Tagaris story. Well, you know, I bet he stole that last page and took it and sold it to somebody else as a priceless relic. Right. It's a sacred relic page. Yeah. It's the sacred relic of Saint someone or other, there's, the patron saint of Don't read this side where there's all these accusations against a guy who coincidentally, totally coincidentally, has the same name as me. But this is obviously, you know, the vellum of the Virgin Mary. And uh, if you just step right over here, yes. 
for a small fee. And and how dare those other popes write an uh, accusation against this other fellow on this sacred vellum? No, that's Paul Paleologus Tagaris. I'm Polly, Paul Paleologus Tagaris. That people get that confused all the time. That guy's a grifter. I wouldn't <laughs> trust him. Yeah. So basically, he's he's a a Google the clever uh, in real history in the 14th century who right. uh, has has an incredible journey uh, grifting everybody he can possibly grift. Uh, who's uh, who's wearing a robe and you know who knows maybe went off to india and grifted uh some people in a completely different the Nestorian religion. churches in india yeah, yeah I, I i'd like to believe that he just kept grifting ever more obscure popes yes that you know <laughs> he went down and grifted the ethiopians at the very end of his life yeah he, he met the pope of scythia so uh gaming wise i think this is just basically a uh a background for sort of a, a picaresque a series of adventures, or you could, you know, create a character, a, a grifter cleric, right? That in, in an F20 world, uh, you know, we don't think of the, the, uh, the cleric as being a, uh, a low rank criminal, but of course, in the real history of the real medieval uh, church on which the, uh, you know, original D&D cleric is kind of modeled, uh, there were a whole bunch of them. It was, uh, there was money in it and therefore there was grifters in it. Right. Uh, so are there any, uh, parting thoughts on, uh, how you would incorporate him into a game? I think that what you might, if, I mean, I think that even my players might balk at being told you're playing a team that does a series of long cons against every pope and patriarch in the 14th century Mediterranean. Um, uh, or <laughs> I think that you could either do it as a one, adventure in like a time travel game where you're sent back in time and your job is to find the Latin patriarch of, uh, Constantinople and, and, um, uh, convince him of the seriousness of this time war against the, you know, Klingons or whatever. And when you show up, it's not a holy man who says, I see that though you are not of our time, you are of God, but it's this grifter. And he's like, Oh yeah, right. Great. Yeah, absolutely. I'll fight the Klingons for you. Uh, that'll be 50,000 ducats. And they can either be like, what, what, what? And try and overturn him and get a proper patriarch, or they can run around and try and get 50,000 ducats with this guy, always forestalling them and taking the money and then insisting on more things. Make him a super annoying NPC that they can't kill because it would ruin history. Until they discover that he vanishes from history in 1394. I guess the way to make it into a campaign is to have a, a detect artifact spell where, you know, uh, you can actually detect a genuinely magical holy relic. Now, there's some sort of weird thing going on where, you know, there's still way more nails of the true cross than you could ever possibly fit on, you know, a whole mountainside worth of crosses. But so there's there's something odd going on in the fact that these the, the provenance of these items uh, may not be strictly... Uh, all on the level, but they all have true, true magical ability. They're, they're all registers, holy items. They all heal people. And it may be in this world that this is the only source of healing, which of course is, uh, then as well as today is a lucrative profession so that the characters have to go and track down all of these, um, missing relics, which, you know, sometimes they're, they're buried, uh, underground where there are creatures and stuff, but, you know, sometimes they're hidden away in the manners of snooty aristocrats who you don't like. And so there's sort of a, a heist element as well as an adventure element. And so as soon as you've got the, you know, series of MacGuffins that you then steal and exploit until a nasty vice patriarch comes along and confiscates it, and then you have to go and find another one, that might give you the, the hook that gives you enough sort of conventional 
adventure to get people uh, going and make it seem like less of a, a weirdo departure from what a role-playing campaign would otherwise be. Uh, well, on, on that note, um, I think it's time for us to go and uh, and find some relics. Uh, and particularly, uh, we need to flee some vice patriarchs because uh, they don't like it when the show runs too long. So uh, we're going to uh, duck out, uh, possibly to uh, Negroponte. But we'll be back uh, next week with another exciting episode of our podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stay in the back office and watch others go into the shimmer alongside such backers as... Robert King. Andrew Cowie. Drew Eichholz. Daniel Markwig. And Derek McMullen. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our newest shirt is our best-selling shirt. That shirt is... Time Incorporated. Changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.